Thank you, Brother John. Appreciate that message and that song this morning. Let's take our Bibles and let's go back to the book of 1 Kings this morning. 1 Kings and chapter number 17. And I'm going to read for us verse 17 through the end of the chapter, verse 24. And I'm going to do our best this morning to try to um, unpack a little bit of this in light of the New Testament. And um, uh, be honest with you, I, I find myself a little nervous in trying to do all this through video. Um, and uh, week after week as we do this, the importance of uh, making these uh, something that can get through this medium to you and grab a hold and let you see the text. And so I hope you will take your time to follow with me in the scripture this morning and that, Father, that the word of God would uh, have free course as we work through this together. And so we're going to begin reading in verse number 17. We'll read down through verse 24. If you find your place there, we'll stand together in honor of the word of God and begin reading verse number 17. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. She said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into the loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. He cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come in unto him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house, and delivered him unto the mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you this morning only in the name of Jesus Christ. And Father, we understand this morning that it is by your might that the heavens and the earth are shaken. And they're done so that we can show the things that cannot be shaken. And Father, we understand that this morning and we confess that you are our unshakable foundation upon which we stand. And though heaven and earth pass away, your word will endure. And it is on this enduring word that we turn to now. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and a heart to believe what your word says. Father, I ask you this morning that through your Holy Spirit, you would apply it to our hearts. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. We see there, of course, and as we continue in our series, and back to our series now on faith in the famine, we continue with this account in chapter 17. And coming to the end of 17, we find an unusual set of circumstances that face uh, the, uh, the prophet and this widow and her son. Um, of course, this is the widow that Elijah is sent to several, uh, almost a year earlier than what our text picks up. A year prior, Elijah is sent there and she is feeding him. And of course, if you remember the account from a couple of weeks back, uh, God tells him to go to this widow and then he tells the widow to feed him. And the widow says, all I have is a handful of a meal and a little bit of oil and I'm going to make a cake and me and my son will eat it and die. And Elijah says, no. Give me to eat first, and then you fix for your children, you and your son, 
and God will provide for you for the famine. And so, of course, she does that by faith, and God provides enough for her and for her son and for Elijah throughout the famine. But now we come to verse number 17. The famine is still going. Uh, the heartache of the famine is actually pressing in on them. Of course, they're being sustained in the moment by the miraculous staying of the oil and staying of the meal and the barrel. And yet we come to this point, and it's now sorrow upon sorrow. It's trouble upon trouble. And we all understand the fact that heartaches don't wait for everything to be going smooth before they show up. And sometimes it's in the middle of chaos that heartaches happen. It's in the middle of a time like this that we lose loved ones or that other heartaches come upon us. You know, I think it's very important that when we read this text that we not be too harsh with this lady. Uh, We find her in the very beginning of the text we read coming to Elijah in very strong words and it's seemingly almost a rebuke of him of saying, what have I to do with thee? Um, And we can see people when they're hurting to come off very harsh at times. And when people are in grief, they can come off even lashing out or even blaming God. And you know, just as a way of introduction this morning, or maybe a little bit of a counsel to us this morning, let me just encourage us to be patient with those that are grieving, be patient with those who are hurting, uh, that we not be quick to correct them in their thinking, uh, but let there be some time to heal. Uh, I would say when someone lashes out in pain, Let us make it a practice not to respond in kind. They're hurting. Um, Let them vent to you even. Let them share their heart of what's going on. Let them tell you how bad it is. And let me encourage you to take their problem to the Lord. Uh, If we look through this text here, we don't find Elijah rebuttaling the woman. We don't find him rebuking the woman in her harshness. But we see him gently taking the son and going and praying for the circumstance. And so let me just admonish us to do that as well. Let's not be so quick to come in and, and offer our counsel before we've listened to their hurt. And so as we try to unpack this text this morning, there is much that needs to be said. And I want to break it down into three sections if I could. I first want to give us the Old Testament story in its setting. And we'll make some application along the way and some observations along the way through this. And then I'd like for us to move and pivot to a New Testament uh, insight of this story. And then finally come down to a present day application of the story. And so we're going to do those three settings. We have an Old Testament story, a New Testament insight, and a present day application. Someone described the Old Testament as a well-furnished but dimly lit room. And when we get to the New Testament, the light of the gospel shines back into the Old Testament and gives us illumination as to what these stories were teaching us all along. And they point us forward to the cross as the light shines back to show the direction of those stories. And I think you'll see that this morning as well. So let's see the Old Testament story. First off, the son of the widow dies. uh, Or is at the least at the point of death in our commentaries. And if you study this text as I hope you've read and will read through this text, um, you will find commentaries saying, well, we're not sure he died according to the language here. But as I read through the text, the Bible talks about his soul coming back to him. Uh, We see this whole picture of this boy being lifeless. And uh, I believe with all of my heart that in this, we find the first account of a resurrection taking place in the Bible. I think it's a foreshadowing of the fact that death will not have the upper hand eternally. That there is hope for the believer even after death. 
And so we see this young man dying. We see him laying lifeless in his mother's arms. Now we can even see the fear and trembling that might come in her words because she says, why have you come here? And often on the prophet's arrival at a city or a town, there would be a fear and a trembling because the prophet came. Because the prophets generally in the Old Testament didn't come bearing good news. Most of the time in the Old Testament, they came bearing some pretty heavy news. Uh, They came telling of a judgment that was coming or telling of an opportunity to repent lest judgment come. And so this prophet had come and he had offered the word of provision for this lady and now he is there and there is a frustration over this grief. And I want you to see the widow's grief in this story. She opens up her response after we're told the son has died in verse 17. And in verse 18 she says, what have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? This is a little uh, harsher to our ears than it probably would have been in their time. Uh, This is probably not uh, the the same way we hear it, would not be how Elijah heard it. It would have been more of a a broken-hearted cry from a mother. It would have been, why has this happened? What have I not fulfilled of your request? What sin is this because of? Or what what, what do you have against me? What have I done wrong to you? And it's almost a pleading of saying, hey, look, show me what I've done wrong. Show me what's come between us so I can make it right so this can go away. She's looking for a way to fix this problem. She's not necessarily coming in and blaming Elijah, but she's saying, oh, what have I done wrong? Why have you showed up? Well, what is this that you've come? Is this the reason you came? Have you spared my son this time now to exact judgment upon him because of something I've done? How can I make this right? Now, I do notice earlier in this text, when we read earlier, that she was very glibly speaking about the death of her and her son. She very glibly said earlier, yeah, I'm going to make a cake and me and my son will eat it and we'll die. And she's just like, yeah, that's going to happen. And she had resigned herself to it. And, and oftentimes, in theory, we can resign ourselves to heartaches and we can walk ourselves through them. But when the heartache actually comes upon us, there is grief that attends the heartache that we could not anticipate before. And now she shrinks from the idea of losing her son and the grief is overwhelming her heart. Noticing here again, as is so often in the mind of a Jew, is that when trouble comes, there's a reminder of sin. There's often a question, and even still today in our modern world, people will look and say, is God mad at me? What is God upset about? And they look and connect these two things. It's somehow another, there must have been a specific sin that I did that God is trying to judge me for. Now, no doubt when there is an awareness of God, there is an awareness of sin, For whatever reminds me of God reminds me of my sin. Because when I see God in his holiness, I'm aware of my unholiness. I'm aware of my brokenness. This woman is aware of her own sin. Now when we consider sin, we understand that all calamity of this world, every heartache, every pain, every death, yea, every disease, every sickness that has ever come upon us, every car accident, Every broken marriage, every tear that has ever been shed is a result of sin. Because you and I this morning, we do not just live in sinful bodies, but we live in a sin-scarred world, a cosmos that has been scarred by the treason of man, and it stands today broken. 
and we find it broken. And yet, in the midst of this broken world, we still see beauty, and we still see the spring flowers, and we still see the sunrise, and we see all the joy that we can find in this world. But don't think for a moment that there's not sin in this broken world. We live in a sinful and a sin-cursed world. We live in a world that is broken by sin. We live in a world that is full of sinful men. Anything that comes upon me in this life, any heartache that comes upon us in this life, and this this is something heavy, church, and I, I hope you will hear my heart behind it as I lay the foundation for where we're going. But it's so important that you remember that anything that comes upon me in this life, any sorrow that I face, whether it's because of my sin or because of the sins of someone else, is less than I deserve. Any heartache I face is less than I am owed. See, I think so often we have become so accustomed to the grace of God that we feel betrayed when calamity falls upon us. That somehow or another, when calamity comes or when heartache comes or the death of a loved one comes, we lose someone we care about. We almost turn, and if we're not careful, we shake our fists at God and say, why? And the answer has already been told to us that we live in a broken and a sin-cursed world and that death comes. Let me take a note here this morning and say to us that when death does come, it should remind us of sin and judgment. I think too often we are too quick to cover over the reality of death. We flower it over, we try to make it look beautiful, but in reality, death should be a sobering moment for every one of us to consider our own mortality, to look at the reality of our own frailty and understand that we need something that can carry us into eternity. We should come to face-to-face with our guilt, and we also get to come face-to-face with his grace. I want you not only to see this woman's grief, but I want you to see Elijah's prayer in this story. You know, it would be easy to understand this widow, who is not a Jewish woman, who is not a nation of Israel. She's not one that would be a God follower. We find that she becomes that, or is definitely on a journey to be a God follower, But she asked the question, why? But I'll be honest with you, I take great comfort in Elijah's prayer because Elijah does the same thing. God, why? Why is this happening? God, what are you doing? God, why? So often we find circumstances, even the ones that we're in today, and they press on us, and we have to stand back and say, God, why? Why? God always has purpose in our pain. God is not caught by surprise in any of our circumstances. I think of John chapter number 9 as the blind man was sitting outside the city and and Jesus and the disciples come alongside of him and they ask the question, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And of course, Jesus answers the question, no, not his sin or his parents' sin, but that my works could be revealed in him, that I could be glorified in him. We ask the question, why did we lose that child? Why cancer? Why does parents die too early? Why is not a wrong question, believer. It is not wrong to ask why. It is never wrong to ask the one who knows the answer to the question why. The, The problem is not asking God a question. The problem is when we get into questioning God. 
God is willing to hear our questions and our crying. And I hear these words of Elijah as he cried out in verse number 20. He cried unto the Lord and said, Oh, Lord my God, hast thou also evil brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? God, what are you doing? God, why have you done this? We often are unjust and unwilling to balance the scales justly, though when we ask why. You see, this is where we end up in questioning God, is we begin to say, God, you owe me a blessing. God, you owe me a better response. God, you, I deserve something more than what you've seen fit to give me. You see, I think often when I ask why I have been guilty of not taking my own guilt and comparing it against all his blessings. You see, this morning, if I took the guilt of Mike Montgomery and I weighed it against the blessings that God has given me, There is nothing to compare what I deserve and what I've received. God has been so good to me. God has been so good to you. His blessings far exceed what we deserve. Yea, even this morning, we don't even take our blessings and measure them against our heartaches. If we truly counted our blessings and we balanced them against our heartaches, there's no way that our heartaches outweigh our blessings. God has been so good to us, and yet what I deserve is I deserve this morning to be condemned and separated from a holy God eternally in hell, and yet God has blessed me. He's poured out his grace upon me. He's given us his word. He's given us the opportunity to hear the word of God and to sing his praises and to gather around family in our own homes and wrap them close. He's given us the sunrises and the sunsets and the beauty of the flowers, the beauty of the trees and blossom. All of these are God's blessings, and none of these are deserved by us. Not only did Elijah ask why, but he said, God, act. He asked God to act. There is boldness here in to presume upon the goodness of God to act. What a bold thing for a man to ask God to do anything more than he's already done. What an audacious thought. Me, a cosmic sinner, a sinner against the holy God, guilty of treason, deserving judgment, and yet somehow or another, I would have the boldness to walk into the throne room of God and say, God, would you please do this? Do you see the audacity of that? You could imagine this morning the audacity of someone who owed a great debt going back to the one they were indebted to, or maybe your banker who you're indebted to, and and you're greatly in debt, and not only are you in debt, but you've not made your payments. You're behind on all your notes. Your credit is shot, and you walk into your banker and presume to say, hey, not only do I not want you to foreclose on my house, I want you to give me the deed to my house. Well, the boldness of such a request is beyond most of us. The audacity of such a request is something we would shrink from. And yet Elijah goes into the throne room of God and says, God, please give this son back his life. Each time I come in prayer, I am coming to the one to whom I am already eternally indebted to. You see, I'm not coming, and I think often we see the Christian life as somehow or another, if I live a good Christian life, I'm building a good credit score with God. And God eventually will be indebted to me. 
But friends, you and I are not coming and building a credit score with God by our prayer life. We're not coming and building a pattern of living that would somehow or another uh, make us worthy of God answering prayers. Rather, I am coming to God who allows me to come to him. And every time I pray and every time I request, I go further in debt to his grace. And what a gracious God to hear us. Not only did Elijah pray, but I love this. Elijah's prayer seemed to be audacious. But we see God's work in this text. Verse number 22 warms my heart. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. Just the reality that God hears the voice of a man. That God, who is eternally beyond our comprehension, who is so high and lifted up that we could never reach to him, there is no good we can accomplish, and yet we betrayed that God. And yet that God in his patience and his love, when his servant cried out to him, God heard the voice of Elijah. This morning I can rejoice in the fact that when you and I pray, he hears our voice. What a God that would hear our voice in the midst of heartache. Now what is God's work in this? He heard the voice, but God raised the boy to life. He gives strength to the faith of the woman. He confirms the ministry of Elijah. Look at verse number 24. The woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. He didn't say, I know what you say is true, but I know that the word of the Lord is true. She was convinced that God's word was true. She was convinced that the God of Israel was the one true God. God is alone, the only one who gives life, who answers prayer, and who moves ministry forward. With all of our planning and all of our scheduling and all of our discipline, it is God who decides. How many times have I said it over the last six months? I've said it in our church services that we plan and we dream and we think about what we're going to do, but ultimately it is God who decides. I've taken the schedule that we've written out for the church, and I've done it in my personal schedule and for the church, and I've held it up to God in this very room in prayer, and I've said, God, here's our plan, here's our schedule, but if this is not your plan and your schedule, then you defeat this, and he's chosen to. He's chosen to. And so who are we to say, God, why? Now, God, I don't understand. I don't know what you're doing, but ultimately I know that it is you that is doing it. It is God that raised this son to life. It is God that confirmed the faith of this woman. It is God that expanded the ministry of Elijah. It is God alone who moved things forward. So now we've seen the Old Testament story. Now let's see if we can't find some New Testament insight. We find in the book of Luke, Jesus in chapter number four is talking with some of his his opposers and these would come to him and and wrestle with his word in verse number 23 he says yea will and he said unto them ye will surely say unto me this proverb physician heal thyself whatsoever ye have heard done in Capernaum do also here in thy country these men had come and they were upset with him for what he had said in the synagogue and and Jesus prophesies that they're going to be upset with him and that they're going to rail upon him. He makes this statement. He said, you're going to say to me, physician, heal thyself. Basically, hey, if you're going to do the works for them, why don't you do it for your hometown? If you're going to do the work out there, why don't you take care of your people? 
You see, they were offended at God's work in the life of others. And he prophesied that they would be. Jesus then cites the account that we've read. Verse number 24, he says, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, when a great famine was throughout the land, all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. Hey, he said there were many opportunities for people to go to, and he even cites the leper Naaman later on, and he says, hey, leper, there were many lepers in the nation of Israel, and yet it wasn't to those that, uh, that, that, that Elijah or Elias healed, but Elias was able to heal Naaman the Syrian, the Gentile man, and he cites two Gentile people that had faith in God. We see this connection here. And he said that the Israelites, they were a little upset that God was doing a work outside of them. You see, Israel wanted a resurrection. They wanted a Savior and a Messiah. But what they didn't want to admit is that they were dead. They didn't want to admit that they were broken. They didn't want to admit that they were in need. They wanted to admit that they were okay with their Baal worship, and they were okay with their child sacrifices, and they were okay with all of this. They were okay now in Jesus' day with their Phariseeism and their keeping of the law, and that they just needed somebody to come along and to give them some political freedom. They didn't really need a true transformation of their heart. You see, they felt that they had a right to the working of God, but the widow did not feel like she had a right to it. They felt like they had a right. We are Israel. We are the people of God. You owe this to us. You see, God is looking for people who believe the whole package. He's looking for someone who look at the whole package and say, hey, I am dead in trespasses of sin. I don't deserve anything that God could give me. I'm not, I can't come to God with one claim on one ounce of God's grace, but I can come boldly on the promise of God saying I don't deserve it, but I'm pleading for it. And here this widow comes, a Gentile outside the people of God. She comes in, and God, as Jesus is pointing out, that it was the faith of this widow that he was responding to. You see, I am unworthy. I am dead. I am a leper. I am guilty. And without God, I have no hope. You see, God is looking for a people who believe the whole package. You see, we must come face to face with our condition. We can't look at our heritage and say, well, you know, America's been a Christian nation. Everything should go well for us. We're a Christian nation. Friend, there is enough sin in our nation today for God to pour out his judgment tomorrow. And we deserve every bit of it. As a nation, we deserve God's judgment as a people, as individuals. We deserve God's judgment. And it is only because of the long-suffering of God and his mercy that he stays that judgment. Why? He is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God is staying his judgment. And here again, he's saying, I'm looking for a faith that would understand that you don't deserve and you have no rights to my grace. We do not deserve it based upon our works. We do not deserve it based upon our nationalism. We cannot merit a resurrection. You and I can't, we can't ever get to a place where we have 
prayed enough and fasted enough and earned enough of God's grace. Because if you're earning grace, it is not grace. Grace is freely given. We cannot merit a resurrection. We can only receive it by faith. And here's the thing. As we receive it by grace, we enter into his debt eternally. And we are forever growing indebted to his grace. What a concept this morning. Man in his pride wants to look at what God can give and say, God, what's the price tag? What do you want for it? I'd like to have eternal life. What do I need to do? Oh, I need to get rid of all my sin. I'll reform. Oh, I need to do Christian acts. I can do those things. Oh, I need to follow the law. Yea, we will do everything that God has said. And Israel claimed that they would be able to do everything that God has said. And yet now we're just a few short years, just a few short generations into this theocracy of Israel. And now they've abandoned God completely, not for the first time, but for the hundredth time they've walked away from God. They've thumbed their nose at God. They're sacrificing uh, children to Baal. They're offering all kinds of wickedness up to false gods. And God looks at them and says, I'm looking for faith, but I'm not finding it in Israel because they think they deserve what I give them. Too often the church, if we're not careful, we can get on our moral high ground and think that we deserve what God offers. Friend, you and I are always and forever undeserving of his grace. It is his grace that is poured out on us freely. So then what's the present application? God has been good and is good despite of our suffering. Despite all the suffering that we face, God is good and has been good and will be good. And let us as believers not look at our present struggle or our heartache and doubt the goodness and the purposes of God. Friend, if you can look at the cross and see the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and then somehow or another turn and shake your finger at God for any suffering, you're missing the point of the cross. So often we look at this broken world and even believers I hear is crying things like this. God, do something. And I want to say he has done something. He sent his son Jesus to die in your place. He has conquered death. He has conquered hell. He has conquered the grave. And faith in Jesus Christ is my hope this morning. That's where we stand. Let us believers look at this struggle and understand that God is still good. This world needs to see believers in the midst of heartache with a song on their lips and a tear in their eye and rejoicing in the goodness of God in the midst of pain. Don't discard the years of God's goodness for what seems to be bad right now. God has been so good to Shelby Bible Church. God has been so good to my family. And when heartache comes... And when pain comes, though it tears at our soul, God is still good. Let me challenge us this morning. Let us not lash out at those who lift up God as being good. Too often we find ourselves in a heartache, and somebody comes along singing a song, somebody comes along praising God, and we're very quick to discount them. Ah, they must not have suffered like I've suffered. They must not be hurting like I've been hurting. You know what I found? I found that people who suffer the most have the sweetest songs. They're the ones that have learned to sing at midnight. 
Because God is gracious. Because yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. No doubt this morning, the cross, do not doubt this morning, rather, the cross has paid it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Somehow or another, we can get to the place where we think that heartache is because God is visiting our sin upon us. No, our sin has been visited upon Jesus already. This morning, we live in a sin-cursed world. Heartache comes to believers, but our sin debt has been paid. God, do something. He is. God hears our faithful prayers. I don't understand why God would hear my prayers, but on the authority of Scripture, I believe that God hears our prayers, and he answers them. God hears the prayers of affliction and the prayers of affection this morning. You see, God is gracious this morning, not because of what you and I have done, but because of the cross. His face is toward us this morning because of the cross. He is a loving father this morning because of the cross. He is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. He is altogether lovely. He will never leave us nor forsake us because of the cross. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because of the cross. Not based upon my merit, but based upon his unmerited grace. I'll close with this story, and I do not know the origin of the story, but I've heard it told. A dad who had a little son, his dear wife was pronounced with a fatal disease and she passed. The little boy, just a toddler, and his wife lay in the coffin and the dad and the boy there at the funeral home and the events of the day ended and the night came and it was time to go to bed. Dad trying to keep things normal and no doubt in a fog himself. Tucked the little boy in his little bed, went across the hall and climbed into his own bed and began the process of trying to steal his mind and go to sleep. When he heard the little boy stirring and he got up to see what was going on, the little boy said, Daddy, I need to see your face. It just helps me to see your face. Can I come into your room? And he said, sure, son, you come on in. And dad brought him in and laid him there next on the bed to him and tucked the boy in and got him situated. Dad and the little boy lay there facing one another. Dad reached over out of habit and turned the lamp off. And the little boy said, Daddy, it's dark. Is your face still toward me? And the daddy reached over and put his arm around that little boy. He said, yes, son, my face is still towards you. And so often we as believers, when the trials and the darkness come and the overwhelming grief hits us, it seems as if the light's gone out and we cry out, God, is your face still toward me? And friend, if you ever doubt it, all you need to do is lift up your eyes and look at the cross. Not based upon your merit, but because of what he did, I can say to you this morning, his face is still towards you. And in that we rejoice. I wish I could tell you that the full purpose of the famine and the heartache would be known on this side of eternity. But it cannot always be known here. 
But I can promise you this, God is working all things according to His will and for His glory and for our good. And because of the cross this morning, His face is still Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Father, there's so much in these texts of scripture that our people need and your people need. Lord, I pray, Father, that we would be students of your word this week. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would work in our midst. Lord, I pray that you would reach out into the homes of our people this morning and wrap your arms of comfort around them. Lord, may we not come to that with a demand. May we not come to that with, you owe me. Father, we would come and thank you for the cross, believing that your face is still toward us. It's in the precious name of Jesus.